Eugene Peterson, a pastor and theologian, related a story of when he was a new grandfather. His son and daughter-in-law and their little grandson were visiting at a time when the, the baby was just learning how to crawl. I'll let him tell the story. He says, I was sitting on the floor watching with wonder this small body perform a series of highly skilled muscular operations, calling for the precise coordination of eyes and, heart and arms and legs. He had a tennis ball, which he would pick up, throw, and then crawl after. And this went on for 10 or 15 minutes. And then, just then, the ball that he was crawling after rolled under a dry sink and disappeared from view. The moment it disappeared, Andrew stopped, sat back on his well-diapered bottom, and looked around for something else to do, as if there had never been a tennis ball to begin with. I looked at his mother and said, Lynn, what's wrong with Andrew? And Lynn, not bothered to look up from her book, said coolly, Andrew has not yet acquired object permanence. What does that mean? It means if he can't see it, it doesn't exist. I thought of that story as we begin looking at this passage in 1 John, because I want to talk about something that we don't see, but that if we do see it, the more we see it, it changes our life. And I'm talking about the love of God toward each one of us individually. We've been going through this book of 1 John, and we've been in chapter 4. We began reading and studying verse 7. And I, I plan on going through the rest of this chapter. But as I work through this, uh, I got about, I think, Wednesday or Thursday of this, no, Thursday of this week. And I'm like, no, no, I, I, I need to change this. I feel God's spirit kind of prompted me in a different way. And uh, a little bit behind on things because of that, sorry. But um, so lower your bar here because... Uh, <laughs> That's what I'm trying to get at. I want to focus on one phrase in the midst of this. Yeah, looks like a, oh, there we go. I want to focus on one phrase, and it's this phrase that occurs twice. God is love. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. And this is how God showed his love among us, he sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. Would you join me in prayer? Father, we just sang that song, Show Us Christ. Oh, that is my prayer. That is our, our need, God. No one needs to hear my opinions. Well, we all need is to see you through the preaching of your word. Here at the beginning of this week, to reorient our lives to the most important things about us, the most important truths, how to live in light of that. Lord, we need that. We need to see you in your glory. We need to see you in your beauty. Would you let that happen this morning? Would you let my words be just what you want them to be, Father? And would you help us to receive them as you desire us to receive? both for your glory and for our good. We pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. All right. So with this passage in, in the background, and we're going to come back to this again and again, but again, I wanted to focus instead of the whole text just on that one phrase, God is love. And I, I want to do that because I'm convinced of something, that we don't see the most important thing about us. We do not see the most important thing about us. We're like that child. If it's not there, or if we don't see it, it's not there. 
and we don't see the most important thing. What is that? Well, the most important thing about us is, is simply this, that we are perfectly loved by the one who controls all things and perfectly, completely accepted by the only one whose opinion matters. This is the most important thing about you. It's not your age, race, income, uh, looks or lack thereof, in my case. Um, it's not your career success. It's not how much money you have in the bank. The most important thing about any of us, by far, is this. We are in Christ. Because of that, we are perfectly loved by the one who controls all things. So we're not left up to fate or our own chance. And we're also accepted by the only one whose opinion matters. And uh, one of the things we talked about a few weeks ago was the phrase in Christ and how often the New Testament uses that. And this is that idea, that we are in Christ. And the scripture uses this again and again to talk about us being in Christ, in this realm of love associated inwardly with Christ. Now, as I said uh, a couple weeks ago, the scriptures only talk three times about us, uh, about Christ being in our heart. But they talk over 150 times about us being in Christ. That is the crucial thing. C.S. Lewis said, someone once said that uh, the most important thing about us is what we think of God. And he goes on to say, by God's own word, that is not true. The most important thing by far is what God thinks of us. And what God thinks of us, if we are in Christ, if we are his, is in incredibly profoundly life-changing if we get it. We are completely and perfectly loved. Now, how do I know that we don't get it? Uh, maybe I'm being presumptuous here, but maybe not. Isn't it true that if we got the fact, that if I got the fact that I was completely, completely loved by the only one who controls all things, that there would not really be much anxiety, right, or fear or worry. Those things, if, if we really understood God's love, those things would melt like snow on a spring day. If we really understood his love, that the only one whose opinion matters has accepted us fully, there would be no striving, no worry about what people think about us at all. If we understood his love, holiness and love and joy would mark everything we do. Why? Because I would be so formed and shaped by that love that everything I do would be a response to that. And that's not the case for me. Now, maybe it is for you. Maybe you have no anxiety, no worry. Maybe your, your thoughts are completely formed in love. And, and, uh, and later on, we'll go down to Lake Lemons. You can walk on the water, okay? Uh, because that's not like anyone I've met personally. We, we don't get it. We don't understand this love fully. I believe our, our, really our biggest spiritual need is to understand this love more fully. That's why again and again and again, the scripture talks about the depth of this love. And that's why Paul in Ephesians 3, when he prays for us Christians after going to this long, beautiful exposition of what God has done for us. And he ends up chapter 3, except three chapters of that, says, I want to pray for you that you would understand this love. And he's writing to Christians and he's saying, we don't understand it. We have to pray, ask God to help us see it. We don't get it. Now, why? Why don't we see God's love? Um, well, I think there's a couple things here. I think, first of all, I'm going to give us four reasons why I think we don't see God's love. First of all, we have been wounded by those uh, around us who should have loved us. So in other words, other people who have been in a relationship 
where we had a claim upon their love, failed us. Uh, very often this is apparent, right? So it's amazing how often we transfer our the parents um, and how they raised us onto our relationship with God. And, and sometimes that's that's good. Sometimes it's, it's not so good. Sometimes uh, we may feel like, you know, our, our parents just never never gave us the affirmation, even when we did something right. I heard a man, he read an ad in a newspaper, hunting dog for sale, $2,500, but well worth it. So curious, he called the number, and the man told him that he had to see the dog in action before he made any decision. So the next morning they went out hunting early, and the dog flushed two birds from a clump of bushes. And when they fell into the water, he walked on top of the water, grabbed the birds, and walked back on top of the water. Uh, the man was amazed, right? And he bought the dog on the spot. Next day, he persuaded his brother or, and his father to go hunting with him. And they flushed a couple birds, and the dog again walked on top of the water, retrieved the birds, and walked back on top of the water. And he asked his father what he thought of the dog, and, and his father replied, So, you bought a dog that can't swim. You know? <laughs> Some of us, that's kind of how we think of our relationship with our parents. And maybe it's not entirely fair, but... Sometimes we've been deeply hurt. Sometimes it might not be a parent, maybe a spouse or a friend, bitterly hurt by people who said they loved us. And so when we hear God loves us, it's all going to be filtered through that past experience. Second, I think we, uh, this is a little bit more substantive here, we misunderstand the source of love. We misunderstand the source of God's love. You know, in this world, If you say to someone, I love you, and they say, why, normally you're going to give them a reason of their attributes that you really appreciate or admire, right? And that, that's fine. But what happens in this world is that we tend to think love is the result of a certain type of loveliness in whoever's being loved. So if a young man goes out and falls in love with, with a young woman, there's something in her that causes that love to come about, right? Uh, and here's the thing, though. We have this in the back of our mind that this is what love is. There's something within us that should cause God's love to come about. And that's exactly the wrong uh, opposite progression of how this works. This is not the progression. What do we see here? God is love. Now let's start to break that down. And then we'll talk about how this changes our understanding of, of the source of God's love towards us. God is love. This is an amazing phrase. I, I know we've heard it again and again. Do you know, though, that when the Bible talks about God and it says God is something, it's almost always referring to a metaphor. God is a rock. God is water. God is a strong tower. So it's a metaphor telling us something about how God relates to us. Those are beautiful and wonderful. Sometimes it, it, there's a, an adjective, right? God is, God is holy. God is just. Uh, God is the creator. But this, this is different. This is a God is statement followed by not a metaphor, not an adjective, not a verb, by a noun. Not a metaphor either. God is love. Incredibly unique statement in the scriptures. God is love. Maybe a way to think about it is like this. 
Um, I can't say I am husband, all right? I can say I am a husband because I am. I got a wife. I have no, no idea where she went. Probably helping the nursery, maybe. Um, I, I am a husband, but you know what? There's a time I wasn't a husband. Maybe, I hope not, but maybe I'll survive my wife's life, and then I won't be a husband anymore, right? So I can say right now I am a husband, but I can't say I am husband, but I can say I am human because that's the essence of who I am and how I exist. When it says God is love, it doesn't say God is a loving being or God takes up love upon a, a certain criteria being met within us. God is love as you and I are human. This is his nature, his essence. And so his love for us is not going to arise by something that we do or don't do, by being good enough. That's not what it's about. This is a love that arises from his own nature. Now, the glory of that is, that means your failures will never affect this love. It might affect the way that you were able to receive it, but it won't affect the love itself. It never will. I, I put down this phrase. <clears throat> we love the lovely. He makes those he loves to be, to be lovely. We love the lovely. He makes those he loves to be lovely. I heard a story, kind of a cute story about Thomas Wheeler, Wheeler, who was CEO of the Massachusetts Mutual Life Insurance Company, and he used to tell this story about himself. It says he and his wife were driving along an interstate when he noticed a car was low on gas. So he got the highway at the next exit, soon found a rundown gas station with just one gas pump. He asked the loan attendant to fill the tank and check the oil. You tell this is a while ago, right? And then he went for a little walk around the station to stretch his legs. As he was returning from the car to the car, he noticed that the attendant and his wife were engaged in an animated conversation. The conversation stopped as he paid the attendant. But as he was getting uh, back into the car, he saw the attendant wave and heard him say, it was great talking to you. As they drove out of the station, Wheeler asked his wife if she knew the man. She said she did, and in fact, they'd gone to high school together and dated steadily about a year. Boy, were you lucky I came along, Brad Wheeler. Why? Well, if you'd marry him, you'd be the wife of a gas station attendant instead of the wife of a CEO. My dear, replied his wife, if I'd have married him, he'd be the chief executive officer and you'd be the gas station attendant. <laughs> And that kind of illustrates the kind of love. God does not love us because there's this infinite worth and value that we, in what we do. He loves us, and then that worth and, and, and all those beautiful things come about. He makes us into be lovely in his eyes. That is the difference. God is love. And you, you see it here, right? This is love, not that we loved God. There's nothing in us to prompt him. Uh, Romans 5 says, while, this is the love of God, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't die for us after we'd cleaned up our act. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And because we don't understand the source of love, we tend to not see it. We see our failures instead. Uh, third, why don't we get it? Well, we've been wounded. Number two, we misunderstand the source of love. Number three, we misunderstand the nature of love. 
We misunderstand the nature of love. In other words, what love is and what love is intended to do. Now, do you see it here? This is love. Not that we love God. He sent his only one, his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. A little bit beyond or before this in chapter three, this is the love of God that he sent his only begotten son to save us, to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Now, God has an incredible plan to, for each one of us. It goes far beyond just saving us from our sins. That's where it's going to start, though. Romans chapter 8. Uh, this is kind of like one of the highlights, one of the high pieces of scriptures. And, and we've probably heard this first verse. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Now put that word in your mind. So there is a purpose for God calling each one of us. And it is a purpose of love, but maybe not just the, the shallow type of love that we think. For those whom God foreknew, he also predestined, what? To be conformed to the image of his son. God's destiny for you and I is not just to save us from the wrath of God, but that through that, beginning with that, to give us a new life in which we become like Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 1 says, because of what God done, has done, Jesus is not ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters. And then he goes on, that he might be the firstborn uh, among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called, and those he called, he also justified, and those he justified, he also glorified. That's all along with this picture. So what I'm trying to get at is this. We all have a white, our own version of a white picket fence uh, life of how we want life to be, right? Um, I heard someone describe it that way. You know, this white picket fence type of perfect house and family and, and situation and everything. Now, I don't really care for white picket fence myself, but just think of that as a metaphor for how you want your life to be. So what do you want your life to be right now? And then think, what do you want your life to be five years from now? Think through that just for a second. What do I wish was different about my life right now? What do I hope my life, wife, well, maybe my wife, what do I hope my life looks like five years from now? Now, for most of us, the answers we give to that, if we're honest, are not the things that God says he will bring into our lives. God has bigger fish to fry than to making our life more pleasant in this world's terms. In fact, he will sacrifice some of our temporary happiness for our ultimate good, just like any wise and caring parent does for their small child. God does that on a much bigger scale. Why? Because he knows. He sees the big picture, and we don't. He understands that he has a plan and a purpose for you, and it's, it's not primarily to bless you in this life. He, he may do that, and we can be grateful when he does. There are tokens and signs of his love, but they're not the fullness of it. The fullness of his love comes about after we are laid in the ground or when he comes back and we see him face to face and we are rebirthed into a new kind of creature, that is when, that is when the fullness of God's promises come about. And that's why we can't really judge his love very well because we don't see that. 
we don't have that same view. We, we tend to view, well, God loves me. Why doesn't he solve this problem and this problem and this problem? Well, if he doesn't solve it, it's because he loves you. And because there's something in that problem, or at least the tension in that problem, and as you deal with it, that has to come about for your good, for my good. And I speak that through experience. I'm not saying that lightly. Another way to put that, let's see if we can illustrate this. I've done this a couple weeks before. No, I guess a couple months now. Got this nice rope here. I guess I should have untied this earlier. All right, so imagine this rope <laughs> stretched all the way across this room. Yeah, somebody help me out here. All right, thank you. I'm no good at that stuff. All right, imagine this rope stretched entirely across the room. It's about 70 feet in here. How much of that rope would represent this year? About one foot, about this long. Take that same rope. Thank you. I know I messed it up. I do. Can you get that into uh, Bruce over there? Bruce, do you mind helping me out? Bob, can you help me out over here? Oh, just okay. Just go all the way to that wall over there. Bruce, go all the way to the wall over there if you don't mind. Sometimes it's good to get a visual here. And then pull this baby taut. Pull yours a little bit more there, Bob. All right. This is the 70 years of your life. And this is one year of that. And within that, this is one week. And yet, don't we tend to view how our life is going on a day-by-day -day or even a week-by-week -week basis? Now, now, here's where this analogy fails. Say Bruce over there represents our birth, and Bob represents our, our death over there. But if the gospel is true, if this word is true, Bob's going to have to walk a long ways to really get our full entire existence, right? Because we are promised an eternal life without end. He's going to have to keep walking without stop. Now, if that's true, if Bob just keeps on going and he circumnavigates this globe, I hope you brought a lunch, um, then we have to examine our life, our year, our month, our week, in light of that. And that's part of the reason we don't understand and can't see God's love fully, because we don't see this big picture, but God does. Thanks, guys. You need to just let it drop. Thank you, Abby. All right. And that brings to the fourth thing. We don't understand. Uh, we misunderstand the nature of God's love, and then we don't get the big picture. So we've already kind of bled into that. We don't see how we fit into that big picture. That's not all about me. And uh, we don't see how the present circumstances fit with our eternal joy. So imagine, got this, this, this visual, right? But right now, in this week, I've got a certain circumstance, a certain situation that is destroying my peace. A certain thing I'm so worried about. A certain thing I'm so mad about. Maybe I'm angry. And here's, here's what I'm trying to say. If God's purpose is not simply to make your life better, but to make you into an entirely new kind of better being, a different kind of being, we're not going to understand 
how the individual events of our life and our situations and circumstances fit into that. We just won't. Why? Because we see this and God sees the big picture. I told the story before about a, a farmer, Chinese farmer, and um, many years ago, many centuries ago, and, and the story's told that he had one son that he loved deeply and, uh, and one horse. And that was pretty much the extent of all that he cared about, right? He had one son, one beautiful stallion, beautiful horse. And uh, one day the horse somehow got out and, and ran away. And the neighbors gathered around and said, oh, it's terrible. You, you've lost your horse. What a terrible thing to happen to you. And, and he responded, well, good or bad, we'll see. And sure enough, three days later, that horse returns, but he's also leading seven other horses that have come in from the wild. And they put them in the, in the pen together. And uh, his neighbors gather around. Oh, what good luck. What good fortune. Now you have eight horses. And he said, well, good luck, bad luck. We will see. And his, his son is out there the next, next day trying to break some of these horses. And he gets thrown by one and, and breaks his leg. And, uh, you know, not fatal, but 200 years ago, that's, that's going to um, be a significant setback. Neighbors gather around. What bad luck. It's too bad those horses came back in the first place. What bad luck your son has now got a broken leg, won't be able to work for months and months. Well, good luck, bad luck. We'll see. Within two or three weeks, the Chinese army came into their village to recruit against the, the war against the Huns, and they gathered every able-bodied young man in the village, and they left that son because of his disability. The friends gathered around. What good luck. He, he doesn't have to go fight this war. Many of our sons will never come back. And, and you know what he said, right? Good luck, bad luck, we will see. And, and the point of that parable is this. You can only judge whether a certain circumstance is good or bad for you, not only if you know the ultimate goal of your existence, but also if you see the ways that that will tie into that goal. We don't see that. We don't get the love of God. We don't see it. All right. So we don't see the most important thing about us, that we're infinitely loved and accepted. We don't see because we've been wounded by those who said they loved us and should have loved us. We misunderstand the source of love as if somehow our, something within us changes that. We misunderstand the nature of love and its goal and purpose. And we don't get the big picture of how our present situations and circumstances and pains and sorrows and suffering, as well as our triumphs, fit into that big overall plan of God. So what do we do? What do we do? I'm going to suggest two things as we kind of close this out. I'm going to suggest two things. Number one, we need to remind ourselves of the big picture and the day to come as often as we can. We need to remind ourselves of the big picture and the days to come and the day to come. The day when, as he says in 1 John 3, 1 here, just a chapter before, when we will see him face to face. The day we are promised that because of God's grace and the forgiveness that's offered in the cross, we will be forgiven and accepted and embraced. Can you put that day in your mind? Can you put that day before you as an engaged man, young man or woman who put before their wedding day? As a woman who's expecting a child puts forth before her in her mind that, that due date? 
Can you see the, the glory and the beauty that is not now? Those things are promised, they're in process, but you don't get them yet. One way we do that is just like we do right now here. We come at the beginning of this week to reorient our lives to these truths. We'll also come weekly, daily, as we spend time in God's word or in worship. And then the last thing, we should orient our thoughts, <clears throat> orient your thoughts around the cross. Orient your thoughts around the cross. Anybody know what this is? I'll, I'll be really impressed. Yeah, I didn't either until I looked it up, so uh, don't feel bad. Um, I remember in London a few years back, I've only been there once, was with my daughter, and we were taking this train, and one of the one of the train stops was at Charing Cross. And I remember that. I've heard that that phrase before. And it's like, yeah, that's an odd phrase for a subway system to have. But actually, I found out something. This is Charing Cross. So it's actually a highly stylized cross uh, that was made. This, this is rebuilt, but it was originally made in the early 1200s. Now, there's, there's a long history with that. But what happened is that Charing Cross became the place, and there's a, a cross that was associated with this and, and building part of it. Charing Cross became the place known as the center of London. In fact, for centuries, it was the law that every place would be marked off as the distance from Charing Cross. This is kind of what it looks like today. So as you see, things have changed there. Uh, but I'm told that, uh, of course, it didn't used to be in the middle of business district, but more of a residential area. And, and during those times, there was a small boy who had been lost, uh, lost in the, in the streets and back alleys around London, didn't know how to get home. And the policeman asked him uh, his name. He told him his name, but they said, where do you live? And the boy just, just cried because he, he could not recall his address. So the man was confused about what to do. Well, well can you tell me anything about where you live? And compressed him. Finally, the little boy says, if you take me to the cross, I think I can make my way home from there. Isn't that exactly what Paul says? What shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? If he did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will not he also along with him graciously give us all things? Let's personalize this. What should you say in response to understanding this and all that God has? Here's what he wants. He wants you to understand that if he did not spare his own son for you, if his love was so deep that he was not willing to let you go into an eternity without him, was willing to pay the price of Jesus Christ going to the cross for you, if, if that is his love, then is that not true? That everything else that comes in your life will also be part of his loving and good plan for you. That's what I take away from this verse, man. There are sometimes you cannot see the love of God 
at all in your circumstances. You cannot see the love of God at all in your situations. There are times when the world will look and say, there is no way that person is favored by God in any sense. What do you do? You come back in your mind to this. If God loved me enough to die for me, then surely everything else that he brings about will also be for my good. I just have to define good in the same way that he does. And that's what we're called to do, to reinterpret our life, to orient it around the cross, to say, this is what I believe. I believe in this cross right here in the center, and I'm going to let every part of my life be changed. Every, every thought that I have about situations and circumstances, every thought I have about other people, every word I have towards those people, I'm going to let them be oriented, centered around this one immovable thing, the cross. That's how we grow in knowing God's love in a practical way. Let's pray.